Hello and welcome back to our final episode for the weekend of the DD Geopolitics podcast. I am joined by our one and only Lydia and a guest host, Tyler. And our guest for this hour is Infrared Haas. Hi, Haas. Welcome to the show. Hi, uh, glad to be here. <laughs> so I want to tell a little bit of backstory about why I even approached Haas. I've been following Haas for a while through his uh, Twitter suspension and his streaming and stuff. But I was in a space with him a couple of weeks ago and he was hosting and I he was asking people to come debate him. And uh, two like America first guys came in and were like, you're not white enough for our movement. And uh, you know, you're, you're like, you're anti-white and Haas was kind of like, I, all right, or whatever. And then a, an African-American female came on and she's called him a Nazi white supremacist. So I was like, I got to get this guy on the show because nobody knows what the hell to do with this guy. And he just keeps kind of getting accused of being two like completely contradictory things. So I was like, I gotta, I want to have this guy on because he's just such an enigma and people don't even know how to like process him or his ideas. So I wanted to kind of have a conversation with you about that and like how you kind of feel about not people trying to box you into these places and you absolutely not fitting in at all. Yeah, I mean, no, it's an interesting thing. I think it has a lot to do with the fact that um, I'm not a right winger. I'm just kind of outside of the wh whatever you'd call it, the leftist, um, you know, echo chamber or the leftist discourse. And there's this kind of thing where, like, if you're not fully um, initiated into that kind of like institutional culture, then you're like the you're a Nazi. You know, you're the worst possible thing that that politically correct culture justifies itself. Uh, on the basis of preventing they're like oh yeah we have to be politically correct or else everyone's going to become hitler so if you're not part of their culture you may as well be hitler pretty much you know tyler are you are you there tyler i think you're muted yeah yeah i'm, I'm, I'm here um yeah i was just letting haas uh, kind of explain um so what what got you to start the infrared collective with uh you know your group of uh people yeah, so uh, we we had been uh, kind of like a study group for a long time, actually, since like 2015, 2016. And um, around 2020, we we just couldn't take it anymore. We weren't public, but like the discourse that we were seeing and just kind of the changes in ideology and all this new talk of Marxism. And we couldn't take how pretty much stupid American leftists were. And, you know, we didn't really begin that combative, but we were like, okay, let's just kind of start a low-key podcast and just kind of put our takes out there, you know? But it nothing really took off until I started streaming, pretty much. Right, right. Uh, and it, it has to do a lot with how they uh, bastardize Marxism and they, uh, you know, misinterpret a lot of him, Engels, Lenin, Stalin's uh, writings. Um, that's kind of how I started to follow you is that um, these people would misinterpret those works or uh, you guys would actually quote the original writing of what they were saying and putting it against what they were uh, pushing into the, you know, the online space saying that this was Marxism, that this was what these, uh, you know, great thinkers were uh, meaning by, you know, However, they were, you know, manipulating what the intention of those writings were, you know, 
Yeah, you know, what it really was is that, okay, around 2015, 2016, you have Bernie Sanders. He's running on the basis of democratic socialism. And then you have the DSA grow. And, you know, uh, you, you, uh, American leftists are unique and distinct from the historical left, you know, in the sense that they're really uh, passionate about, you know, sexual minorities and uh, marginal marginals, you know, they're really um, politically correct. They're really kind of moralistic. And I'm like, okay, that's the DSA liberal Democrat kind of thing. So we kind of independently, uh, and I didn't, we didn't begin this way, by the way, but we kind of independently were like um, re-examining Marxism-Leninism. Because when you're a Marxist intellectual in the West, the first thing you want to do is say real existing socialism and communism was not sophisticated enough. It was vulgar. I'm a really smart, unique intellectual, and I'm going to kind of, you know, um, I'm going to kind of have insight uh, where they couldn't. Right. And we kind of started to appreciate how even though uh, the writings of Stalin seem simplistic in some sense, there's a lot of wisdom there, you know, because there's a lot of experience concrete experience that that's um bounded up with so we really started to kind of think about marxism leninism in a more sophisticated and charitable way than western marxist intellectuals typically do for full disclosure the kind of background we're coming from is like you know slavoj zizek uh you know french theory that kind of thing so it's like we're beginning in a very strange place to re-examine Marxism, Leninism, right? Or at least uh, an unorthodox place. But anyway, um, it's a, it's a long story short, we started to realize like, okay, the, like obviously Marxism, Leninism is not politically correct. They, these are not like, this is not like a woke thing. You know, we understand it historically because we're very familiar with the leftist critiques. So Stalin was too homophobic. They were too conservative. They were too patriarchal, yada, yada, uh, especially in comparison with the libertine morality of like the new left. So that was like a truism for us. Like, yeah, we, we're going to we we need to rediscover Marxism, Leninism, because this is not historical communism, this dumb woke shit we're seeing, you know, around 2020 and stuff. So uh, it comes to my like extreme shock and surprise that. After years after we kind of started getting into Marxism, Leninism, it somewhat becomes trendy in America. And now you have this very bizarre phenomena of and it might not seem bizarre for others, but for us, it was very bizarre, like seeing people um, with a Stalin profile picture with like a trans flag. And it's like, huh. You know, that's not really something we that's not really something we like expected because we automatically understood how this kind of trends were radically outside of Marxism, Leninism, you know. Right, right. Yeah. The, the way I see that sort of thing is that the, uh, you know, the Marxist left or the post 1992 space of uh, communism or Marxism, Leninism uh, specifically was just a wide open, you know, uh, frontier for these uh, left groups to kind of, uh, it, it was a safe space, like an ideological safe space in which they were free to 
operate without any real criticism because communism had fallen. The USSR had, uh, you know, was, uh, you know, disbanded and uh, you just had like the American left uh, free to uh, interpret these things any way they wanted. And over, you know, since 08 and, you know, the decade plus since into COVID, these uh, these ideas were unchallenged from a real orthodox Marxist-Leninist, uh, you know, ideological space. So I think that's why you get a lot of this is because it, it was just uh, a way for these uh, pseudo-intellectuals and, uh, you know, these academic, uh, you know, do-nothings to sort of, you know, make communism what they wanted it to be instead of what it actually was. And the way I see infrared is a reintroduction of orthodox Marxism, Leninism, and then applying that to the 21st century. So in your, uh, in your opinion, or in your uh, group's vision, what do you see as Marxism, Leninism in the 21st century? Like, what does that look like to, to Haas? Sure. So the way we the way we see it is that you're beginning with classical Marxism in history, Marx and Engels, right? And this perspective um, is kind of like um, I don't want to like attribute too much to them or or uh, impose too much on them, but it's kind of beginning from a Eurocentric perspective, just in the sense that you know the revolution is going to break out in the most advanced capitalist core, England, right? which was a prediction that did not come to fruition. Um, and you also have uh, a kind of Marxism that is just concerning itself with, you know, a very strict kind of industrial proletariat, right? And then what we see in the uh, case of Marxism-Leninism is something kind of curious. We see Lenin proposing an alliance with the uh, the peasantry, right? Um, we see the development of something called socialism in one country, which more or less, I mean, despite the Communist Manifesto said communism or the class struggle will be national in form. But it did say that, you know, the revolution will be the simultaneous action of, you know, the advanced peoples. And this is not the case with socialism in one country. Um, so you see a, a line of development going from the kind of dogmatic classical Marxism through the experience, the concrete experience of Marxism-Leninism, through the Russian experience, through the Chinese experience, and so on and so on. And so we want to approach Marxism from the perspective of this kind of teleology of what is driving it, what is true about Marxism that drives it in this direction, in contrast to the kind of vulgar uh, interpretation of classical Marxism or, or orthodox Marxism even. So we are Marxist-Leninist because that is a concrete index of a historical experience so far, but we don't see it as a dogma as much as we see it as a kind of like, this is what has been uh, accomplished both in theory and practice so far, and it's unfinished. And that's a very important kind of thing that makes it so that you have so-called orthodox Marxist-Leninists like the Greek, uh, the Communist Party of Greece, they don't like us, you know, they they see us as heretics pretty much, especially because they're kind of doing this thing where they're like, oh yeah, the special military operation is an inter-imperialist war, this is just like World War One, and we radically depart from that kind of perspective. We also uh, welcome 
Deng Xiaoping's reforms and you know the Chinese experience of Chinese socialism as a as a legitimate um, development of the history of communism and socialism. So uh, when we say we're Orthodox Marxist-Leninists, it's more in the sense of we think this is leading up to a conclusion, which has not exactly been drawn out in, a, in any definite uh, or exact way thus far. And this is, Infrared wants to do this. We want to participate in this kind of discovery of what is the real um, ends toward which this development has been striving? Right, right. Uh, the, yeah, the, the way I see it is that uh, theory has to, like, it, it has to adhere to reality and not the other way. Reality does not have to adhere to theory because it's just, uh, you know, it's ideological jargon until it's practiced in, you know, the real world, in, in a real sense, um, in, in the political sense, especially which does not always match up to the reality of theory. So uh, the way I see it is that Marxism-Leninism is the, it is adhering to particular principles in which the, uh, in which humanity or civilization under, you know, communist dictatorship tries to advance forward and liberate, you know, the masses and the people and accelerate the forces of production. So the way I would see it is that Mao, is rectified by Deng Xiaoping's reforms, which are rectified by, you know, Xi Jinping's, uh, you know, sort of, I, I don't want to say like deliberalization, but sort of uh, removing sort of the maybe liberal excess that was brought into reform and opening up. And I see this is where one of the biggest schisms are between infrared and the online, you know, radical uh, ultra left. Uh, where, where this uh, differs in interpretation. There's, they seem to be stuck in 1990-whatever, where you had China almost completely, like, would appear to be fully liberalized, and then the USSR is completely dismantled and uh, exposed to capitalist shock therapy, to which, you know, it, you know the selling away of all that public uh, or nationalized infrastructure it, into the hands of these uh, capitalist oligarchs in the West. So um, I see that these people tend to be stuck in like the 90s or 2000s. And then um, you guys seem to operate from a space that takes over with the, you know, re, I don't want to say reemergence of China, but the strengthening of China as the U.S. empire wanes. So um, would you say that uh, China and um well, I guess China would be the successor of the Marxist-Leninist tradition. Would you say that they are the uh, driving force of 21st century communism, like in, in actuality? Because there's a lot of uh, uh, confusion to what China is in the 21st century. People tend to be very confused about what it is. They're like, oh, well, it's successful, so it's capitalist because of all these uh, you know, liberalized uh, reforms. But they, they call it communism whenever they do something bad or they uh, adhere to a certain strict authority from the you know, Communist Party. Yeah, I would say China has played a very important role for us in terms of the inspiration for understanding the contemporary significance of communism, and especially in practice, right? The view that communism can be compatible with a very dynamic kind of in some regards, decentralized market economy. So that is a very important thing. 
And we do glean very important philosophical and theoretical insights from the kind of line of succession of Mao, Deng, Ji, right? We draw out the, a very special significance of that, especially because just not to do a detour, but it's like we have a culture war going on in the West, in the US especially, right? And when you study the history of the Cultural Revolution in China, you can't help but get the feeling that this is just a farcical repetition of that. It's not really a repetition because the Cultural Revolution was not like led by pink haired baristas, you know, it was led by like <laughs> newly um, <laughs> urbanized and educated peasants in the cities. And then it actually involved, you know, masses and masses of peasants. Um, but it is this kind of like um, looking for the utopia through culture, I guess, very vaguely, you know, there, this kind of attempt to initiate a revolution in culture. Uh, you see this in the West, so you can't help but get the feeling that, or not the feeling, sorry, uh, derive the insight that, you know, like China is ahead of where America is today. They've already found a resolution of that kind of problem of how do we um, make compatible our ideological vision, um, our kind of moral vision with reality, right? Because reality is not premised by our conditions of morality and our conditions of ideology, right? So how do you deal with that dialectic? And I think there's a very brilliant way in which China has accomplished this historically. But that aside, it's not just China that for us had this significance for the revival of Marxism-Leninism. It was especially also, I think, Russia, actually, because it was from an analysis of... Uh, Russia, that we were able to draw the conclusion of an objective significance of Marxism-Leninism. Remember, we were not seeing Marxism-Leninism as just an ideology. We saw it as like this index of concrete historical experience, which in many ways is irreversible. So when you look at a country like Russia, which um, is not uh, ideologically Marxist-Leninist, right? There is no ruling communist party, but you do see an objective significance of the communist experience there that just is not reversible at the geopolitical level. In many ways, you could say that's, that's driving forth the recent developments with the uh, special military operation. In, um, even in internally within Russian domestic politics, there is just this big question mark of how do we succeed this prior mode of production? I mean, you have a state-owned uh, energy industry, which so far has been sustaining the economy. But in terms of like people, I feel like a lot of people underestimate the extent to which like Russia has not really found a definitive economic system, I don't think. I think it's kind of a, um, a, a, a kind of mixture of, of different things all with different geopolitical implications. Um, and so there you see the most strongly this acute uh, contradiction, which is on the one hand, Marxism-Leninism is this irreversible, um, ex concrete experience and uh, transformation of civilization. And on the other hand, it is not necessarily reflected ideologically that way right so that is a big 
um, that is of great significance for us because when we, for example, are analyzing the revolutionary potential of the American masses, we also have to reckon with the fact that, yes, ideologically, they're not automatically disposed to our views, right? But um, there, on the on the objective level, there there is something there that I think Marxism or Marxism Leninism is is trying to speak to or articulate in some sense, right? So I right. think it's important to situate China in a Chinese context. I don't think Chinese Chinese sorry socialism is uh, completely applicable to everywhere in the world. I think Russia has maybe a more immediate significance for the Western world, at least, uh, because after all, it was Russia that is leading this kind of global revolution against the unipolar system, at least politically. Right, Right. and I, I do think you can see that people tend to sympathize in the West a little bit more with Russia, or at least in the American sense, because, you know, they're uh, you know, laundering our tax money to fight this illegal war and this encroachment on Russian sovereignty. So in uh, in doing that, it sort of uh, cut it. They cut Russia off from the, you know, entanglement with the West. Now, any sort of business dealing has to be through almost mediated through a third party. And you see that with the, you know, uh, exports of natural gas and oil and you know, various Russian commodities to which, you know, they're very rich with, and they have to get it into the market somehow. But um, I, I do think this is, uh, this is a very interesting thing in that Russia cannot exist within the Western context, because it has already taken that sort of step forward in which, you know, they had their uh, 1917 revolution, they underwent the transformation into a sort of you know, state capitalism in an attempt to uh, transition into a real socialist mode of production. And they they sort of accomplished that, but they, you know, the you had Khrushchev who sort of, you know, uh, entirely did a 360 towards, you know, what Stalin and uh, the communist movement was up until that point. And they sort of revised it. And then it did not adhere to sort of like a, like the ideology of Marxism-Leninism Marxism, any forward. So uh, it is interesting that Russia still has to grasp uh, or, you know, reckon with its uh, previous identity because it no longer fits within the Western uh, neoliberal uh, capitalism uh, or w whatever you want to call it in this 21st century, uh, you know, context. But it, it culturally... Uh, economically and uh, ideologically, it seems to differ from the West very much. And I, I think that sort of uh, where you guys are coming from and in, in which you use uh, thinkers like, uh, you know, Dugan, Heidegger, uh, you know, some of these thinkers that are outside of the Marxist-Leninist tradition. So, um, you know, I, I think you use, uh, you know, Professor Dugan's works in a way that uh, as a lens to see Marxism, Leninism through, because, you know, uh, I, I, the way I see it is that uh, people in the, that were, that that lived under the Soviet Union, they cannot help but see things through this uh, Soviet lens, despite all the changes that have taken through. It's like, 
it, it fits in with the idea of the infrared, uh, you know, hypothesis that you can't reverse a mode of production in which they can't go back to simply what is capitalism or neoliberal capitalism because, uh, you know, the 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 base does not match the superstructure. Yeah. So they are in like. Yeah. And not to cut you off, but just a really quick example of that that should be obvious is like. When you try a, a Western model of liberalization in Russia, you see what happens. Because the forces of production have been irreversibly socialized, instead of having this kind of individualistic free market economy, you have oligarchs. You just have people who still concentrate and centralize the productive forces and still they're just as socialized as before in scale. It's just that they're kind of owned by a handful of people, right? Like a if you will, a bunch of mini, uh, mini communist parties, or even, I don't want to insult Stalin, but like mini pygmy Stalins, right? So there is something irreversible about the Soviet socialism. And you see this even today in Russia, you look at the Russian economy and how much of it is state owned. I think, don't quote me, I think it's at least around half. I don't know if that's exactly true. Um, I know the energy industry, the energy sector is uh, foundational for the economy, and that is in large part state owned. So, yeah, I mean, that's a good that's a great example of what we're talking about there. You brought up SMO, the special military operation. I kind of want to get your like perspective on what, you know, how you feel about the special military operation and what it's doing, pushing discourse in a certain direction or what changes have you seen uh maybe for your philosophy or just in general uh it's it's kind of funny because uh the smo was not a shock to us it was a complete confirmation and vindication of what we were anticipating and expecting because like we were giving this newfound significance to russia from this kind of marxist leninist perspective talking about its world historical importance and then everyone was saying what do you mean russia's not communist anymore they're not relevant anymore their economy is the size of italy but we understood that you know th there is something uh true as reflected in the uh works of people like dugan where on a civilizational level russia represents a, a different world than the west it it's a different polarity right and this um has this will have radical consequences so when it came to the smo i mean to put it short uh i got banned on twitch for uh being a kremlin propagandist um so right off the bat i was covering it and uh in a way hostile to the uh to the azov azovites right the liberal azovites is what i like to call them but uh to so to to draw attention to it, our analysis uh, from the Marxist perspective, more or less the view is this, that Putin in Russian context was a kind of bare minimum of sovereignty. He was almost a centrist. Many people do not appreciate that in Russia, uh, Putin is not like some dictator quelling this spontaneous... Um, spontaneous tendency toward uh, Western individualism and liberalism, the political forces in Russia, which rival Putin, very much, I would think, are more anti-Western than he is, actually. Like, 
For example, number two in almost every election, and the second largest party, as we know, the Communist Party. And then uh, outside the Communist Party, you have uh, the far right, the ultranationalists, and so on and so on. So this notion that Putin is like the 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 man that's behind this kind of Russian uh, Russian boldness and Russian uh, hostility to the West is just silly, right? But anyway, um, it, the the war in the Donbass has been going on for you know a decade, about a, de- a decade, right? And it has exerted tremendous internal pressure uh, to the government, right, uh, on a on a grassroots popular level, almost at least in terms of the discourse and so on that goes on in Russia, like. It, it was the Communist Party, actually, which was constantly petitioning and uh, requesting the Russian government to intervene on behalf of the uh, the uh, Donbass republics. And the, the Russian government has been had been very reluctant to do that. I mean, they went into Crimea. People in the Donbass were expecting something similar for Donbass, and it never happened, right? So... The, so the Russian government has tried to maintain the status quo and stability at all costs. When people say Putin is a madman, I think it's an extreme stupidity on their part. Putin has been trying his best to kind of keep the status quo, I think, actually. There's very fine line between Russian sovereignty and uh, important uh, ties, business ties to the West, specifically in the form of the pipelines, right? Nord Stream and Nord Stream 2. So he's been walking that fine line. So this is why they tried Minsk. They tried Minsk too. And finally, when um, Ukrainian, because Ukraine's a different dynamic. Ukraine, oh, it's a democracy, but it's the people with guns who exert the most pressure in defining policy there, right? So that's the Azov militias fighting in the Donbass. They have the de facto sovereignty. And there's also a pressure inside of Ukraine to... uh, retake the Donbass and Crimea, right? So at a certain point, uh, and then also, okay, when you put in the context of NATO and that whole (laughs) wider context, at a certain point, I think Putin, the Russian government, was forced uh, to begin the SMO. So what significance do I draw from that, from the Marxist perspective? It's simple. Um, This special military operation was done on the basis of popular pressure. It was not done on behalf of the vested interests of uh, the so-called oligarchs and and these other business interests. I mean, it's just a stupid analysis by leftists and these so-called communists, the Greek Communist Party. They say, oh, this is serving the uh, ruling capitalist class in Russia. And then how? You know, those are the ones who got, you know, completely... um, uh, I don't want to swear, but they got completely, uh, they lost big time, right? I'll say that because of the sanctions, because of the cutting of relations with the West. And and so Putin is doing this on a popular mandate. I think that, w- that was very clear to me from the beginning. Um, and uh, there is no private interest in Russia. This is what I mean to say that stands to benefit from the SMO. And, you know, it, not to be too cynical, and, you know, I'm, I'm not 
someone who will criticize Russia's conduct um because what business is is it of mine right but I I maybe I have a small suspicion that the 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 reason the SMO has been prolonged or uh there seems to be this kind of confusion maybe is because the ruling circles in Russia like economically at least are not fully on board with it right so i think that's an interesting dynamic so i think from a marx or from a communist perspective it's a no brainer this is why the communist party in russia has this line that yes the the smo is uh is anti imperialist it's not it's not something that was done on behalf of the ruling class in russia i'm glad you brought that up um because Lydia's here with us and she's in Siberia. So I think she could bring a unique perspective about um, the the ideas within the borders of Russia in regards to the special military operations, maybe in the same lens that you're looking at it from. Well, I definitely agree when people say that somehow they make it out to be this imperialist war, supposedly, that Russia wanted to do uh it couldn't be further from the truth uh i actually agree that probably most people in power had no interest in it uh because let's face it i kind of talked about it with um, one of my friends recently um that when we talk about the special military operation the people oh let, let me start start from slightly different point uh sometimes you know a lot of let's put it not even ukraine supporters full-on ukraine supporters but kind of those people who are in the middle they're undecided and the people who i call you know i i like peace i don't like war they like to say well but wasn't there any other way uh why did it have to be a war? But to which I kind the way I kind of see it, which is what I was talking about with my friend, uh, Russia was largely, in my opinion, in a situation where there was no good option. So mm, there were several options, I guess, how we could have handled it, but neither one of them was particularly good or perfect. Let's put it this way. And as far as popular support, I'll say this, mm, as a Russian, sometimes I feel like, and, and that's very understandable because I find that people on average, uh, when they're looking at Russia from the outside in, they see us as this more homogenous society, I would say. And so I often hear this analysis of people saying, oh, Russians, they all support this, or Russians, they all don't like that. Well, in reality, the Russian society is pretty nuanced and pretty diverse. And so when we say that the decision to launch uh, the SMO was popular, even on the, you know, on the people level, I wouldn't actually say that was the case, because you, you kind of said that you were expecting it. And I wouldn't say that uh, it was a complete surprise for Russians because obviously there were, you know, it didn't happen overnight. There was troop build up over the months. And uh, but still for I will say that for actually for most people in Russia, when when it happened, it was a surprise. It was a shock. And maybe even the people who expected it to happen, they didn't expect it to happen on this scale. They maybe expected us, 
well, obviously, since we recognize the republics, they expected us to maybe send the troops there and to kind of, you know, to protect them or to do something along those lines, kind of, you know, Crimea style. But definitely people didn't expect it to to be uh, an, an operation on this scale. And so even within the society, there are people who are, even if they're very much for the idea and what Russia stands for and why, and they recognize that we had no other choice or no other better choice, we should say, they still have their their doubts and they still maybe, you know, part of them because we were hit pretty hard, especially initially. Maybe there were moments for them when they wished, you know, that it never happened. So uh, that's, that's kind of how I see it. But I imagine that among the elites, there was probably even less political will to go through with it. Yeah, I don't, I don't mean to um, paint all Russians with a broad brush, but I, I would like to ask you, um, where do you think the necessity, politically speaking, of the SMO came from? Was it just the expertise of Putin, or do you think there was maybe consideration of the um, the impact a lack of action would have on uh, maybe the popularity of the government and the president and so on? What what do you think was the driving internal factor? Because all, all I, I am certain of is that I just know that it could not have been the so-called uh, ruling class and so-called oligarchs as uh, Western leftists say, I just, from what uh, everything I have come to uh, study and analyze about the situation, that just doesn't make any logical sense. But if it's, if it's not from some kind of popular pressure, at least an anticipated popular pressure, um, like in the long term, you know, when you consider how this has been raging on for a decade, you know, and, and the implications from that. Um, so I, I'm curious. What what's your thoughts on that are? Well, I was I definitely agree with you, and you know to kind of comment on what you said, I didn't I didn't mean to imply that you were painting Russians with this you know white brush. I just say that a lot of people do. Um, see, from my perspective, and I don't claim to to understand everything, but that's just kind of my feeling about this whole situation. Is that basically? Uh, the government and we could say the president so that basically we either do it now or it will you know there won't be a better moment for us it got to the point where we had to do it and then because let's face it uh, he is pretty popular in uh, Russia he has enough uh, enough credit let's put it this way with the people to where he could risk it even something big is this and he knew that even if the people let's say you know i'm not going to give you the percentage because i have no idea but even if all the people were not exactly on board with it they have enough um <clears throat> trust and enough understanding and enough obviously enough compassion for the people in the donbass where they would eventually come around to this that's my take. So I actually, yeah, so I guess that's the best way how I can describe. It. I feel like it, they knew that they wouldn't have a better chance and they had to risk it. Yeah, I, I see. Um, yeah, I, I was 
I, I am just always curious about like thinking of this in the class in the class dynamics of maybe that's a little too cynical, but um, I like to think of it in terms of like uh, who stands to benefit from it, or was it really just something done from the perspective of uh, the state and this kind of interest of state sovereignty, without necessarily um, taking into consideration too much the uh the popularity so i actually i actually think you know i i think i agree with this i think that it was a major uh security threat it was a threat to the sovereignty of the nation when you have a threat like that an existential threat uh you have to do very risky things regardless so it's not you know it's not a matter of who benefits and like i said before and like you said before the idea that somehow uh, the oligarchs would benefit from it is ridiculous because you don't have to be a exactly politically savvy to understand that people who let's put it this way who have a lot of investment in the west a lot of ties with the west in what ways would they ever benefit from something like this it's it's just very strange to me that some people believe in it what about you tyler how do you what do you think about the smo kind of like in this vision like in from the working class lens um it, le- within america um in the u.s or uh, under what context in general um so uh, yeah no it's russia was you know f- sort of forced to um make some sort of uh, intervention in you know ukraine uh donbass and it seems like uh, you know, NATO or the West may have baited them into that. Maybe that's what they wanted, or maybe they didn't really anticipate such a, you know, strong reaction from Russia. They thought they could, you know, maybe bully Russia or impose its continue to subvert its uh, interests uh, by, you know, encircling it and uh, escalating tensions. So the way I see it is that, um, you know, you have the West, you know, uh, astroturfing uh, Ukraine and uh, NATO, uh, you know, escalating this issue on one side. And then you have Russia, who has been, uh, you know, maybe not reluctant to try to help, uh, you know, their, fe- their you know, fellow Russian, uh, you know, people in the Donbass and eastern Ukraine. But it seems like they were they were hesitant because they understand that of you know the power of the west and nato and what the you know bigger picture is in trying to dismantle russia and that's what they've been trying to do for 30 years and i think uh in 2022 you had this you know uh very uh direct schism it's just like enough is enough enough with this uh you know constant encroachment on our sovereignty on our way of life on our you know on Russia for Russians and, you know, Russian speaking people within, you know, Eastern Europe and Ukraine. So, um, so I think this, the, this escalation, you know, it happened over the course of the, you know, last year and that I don't think they really had the full intention to go really, uh, uh, you know, occupy all of Ukraine and, you know, go full shock and awe, like you see with, you know, the U S war in Iraq, uh, you know, it's, it's almost incomparable. Russia has been, very surgical in how they, you know, approach, uh, you know, combatants and, you know, uh, military infrastructure, you know, there, there's always going to be collateral damage, but it seems like 
they have taken a great, uh, you know, sense of carefulness in, you know, not destroying their ancestral homeland, which I, I think, uh, you know, I, I think Dugan talks about that a little bit is that, that you know, they're, it's one in the same, you know, um, they, they, you know, a lot of Ukrainians are Russian and Russia comes from Ukraine. So it's, it, they can't, you can't, Politically, you can't just go carpet bomb your, you know, ancestral homeland. Though the the biggest issue that I see is that uh, it, it seems like the political or upper brass of the military is, I don't know, they they're 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 playing the long game for sure, but it, it's hard to decipher from what sort of perspective. So, if you look at it from a Marxist perspective, I can see why the the Western left sort of approaches it this way, where they just see these oligarch, uh, you know, oligarchical influences that Putin uh, is, they, they see him as a part of rather than him keeping them at bay and keeping their sort of interests under, you know, Russian sovereignty. So, um, uh, the, you know, it, it's, uh, it, it seems that uh, they, there, there's some sort of issue there. And I don't know if they're just hesitant to go too far into this to escalate themselves, or if it is a, uh, if it is just, you know, biding their time, letting the West waste all its resources and, you know, excess surplus that they've stored for, you know, 40 years since the end of the cold war, or, you know, towards the part where they realized that no escalation with Russia was ever going to happen in the, you know, cataclysmic, you know, uh, context of like a world war three. So um, that's the way I see it. And uh, Haas, what, how would you, would you say that 2022 was like, you have this idea of MAGA communism and it's, it seems very inherently contradictory. And as you've stated, it's more of a syncretic uh, understanding or interpretation of things rather than, uh, you know, an ideal ideology. The, the, the people, the Western leftists see this as like a, Oh, it's a it's an ideology and it's nonsensical. Um, I would you say that it uh, was created as a result of the Russian SMO? This you know sort of geopolitical split or this you know divide between East and West. I, I think the SMO was undoubtedly a factor in revealing um, political fault lines, which we've anticipated previously, but which did not make themselves apparent after until the smo exactly apparent at least we speculated that the western uh, basically the, our theory was uh it's very simplistic but roughly accurate um very roughly like at least in some regard that left and right in the east and in the west are swapped they're they're swapped the right wing in the kind of China and uh, to some ex minor, ex I know Russia is a lot more complicated. I'm, I'm very aware of that like Russia has a left, which is like a Western left. Um, but they also have a left, which is a Russian left, right? I would argue at least. But in any case, um, traditionally, like the left in the East is kind of conservative and its cultural outlook. Uh, it's very patriotic. It's very much uh, rooted in the people. It's uh, it's at, at least aspires to be popular, right? In character, the left in the West is very elitist, 
it's very uh, culturally elitist. It's kind of um, hates the the back backward uh, unwashed masses who are, you know, unenlightened with regard to the kind of latest trends of internet and uh, academia and so on and so on. It's it's very it's very much kind of like the right wing in a lot of countries actually, right? So basically combining this with the situation in ukraine like the alignment of forces in ukraine where liberalism is allied to neo-nazism like openly right it became clear to us that uh the western left is to the extent that it is radical is azovite like when they say ah we need to push biden left it's like oh you mean <laughs> maybe a different direction, right? <laughs> like, like uh, these people who are more leftist than the Democrats are like, oh, you're kind of, you know, um, you're like what the Azov Battalion is for the Ukrainian government. You're these kind of extreme radicals who want to use violence to kind of stamp out the, uh, you know, uh, subhumans, inferiors, who are not uh, who are not human enough or Western enough to be considered um, part of your political body, right? This is what you have in Ukraine. It's like uh, you uh, you have so many of these. I mean, you have this transgender. Not to hate trend, I don't hate anyone, but it just speaks to the level of um, compatibility with Western sentiment. The kind of uh, transgender woman who's now fighting alongside the nazis in ukraine i forgot her their name but uh it's like um this this speaks to this kind of framing of like which we which we knew beforehand which is that it's 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 a reinvention of uh european supremacism and nazism ah we're open we're tolerant we're enlightened we go on reddit we are pro lgbt we're open minded and you uh russians chinese uh you know africans whatever arabs you are uh, backward you're intolerant you are closed societies right i mean is it this uh, geopolitically this is just a reproduction of the classical colonial uh, dynamic and then in the european context of course nazism i mean this is really what the nazis thought of the russians and the slavs to their east that they're backward they're not as civilized as us they're not as conscientious as us so okay so you take that to the internal like you 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 take this frame in, in the domestic level in america it's very similar the rednecks and the working poor are backwards subhuman whatever and we are the kind of enlightened ones so I, I just from that very rudimentary framing of things because of the smo i mean maga communism became very clear like yes okay let's let's put our ideological biases aside let's put this ideological neuroticism let's shelve it and let's just kind of with sober senses ask the basic question um if in america like if we had a real left if we had the equivalent of like you know 
the, Ch the Communist Party in China or even the Communist Party of the Russian Federation? Like, what social forces would they be based in? You know, where would they align? And it's just, it's just like so evident that it would be with MAGA, right? And then, but then when you look at this geopolitical angle, it's literally true. Like, MAGA people are the ones who seem to be the most aligned with the, uh, you know, the uh, anti-globalist, if you want to call it that, anti-unipolar uh, forces globally, right? I mean, yeah, people like to talk about how there's a lot of anti-China sentiment. But actually read between the lines. Do Trump supporters generally or MAGA people or conservatives, whatever, do they, generally speaking, do they want to go to war with China over Taiwan? Do they care about human rights and democracy? I mean, there's a lot of fear mongering about different countries, but it's like, it's never framed in the way that actually successfully justifies imperialism. It's always framed in a way of, oh, we just kind of need to be vigilant of this threat on our shores, which is a complete myth. It's nonsense. But, you know, when Nancy Pelosi lands in Taiwan and then even Trump condemns it as insanity, it's like it's very clear where the alignment of forces are in this country. And there's a lot of ideological nonsense that gets in the way of being able to just see the plain reality of it, because people... People are stupid. They just look at it in a surface level way. Ah, MAGA people speak ill of communism. Ah, they're right wing. So that's it. And it's like, well, you don't have that sixth sense, which allows you to actually see how the world actually works and, and what these things actually mean for these different groups of people, you know? Right. And I, I think uh, with Trump, he seems a little bit contradictory on China in, in a lot of ways. Like he'll, uh, you know, saber rattle them. He'll talk about how, you know, they're doing this, they're doing that to subvert the U.S. But then he talks very positively about Xi Jinping and some of the transformations that have taken effect in China. So it, it's it's almost it's very bizarre. Uh, trying, And I see why people get confused about this idea. Um, because, you know, the, his base is very anti-communist in a, you know, in a, you know, general sense. But I, it seems like when you, like, uh, like you demonstrated when you went to the MAGA rally last year is that they, uh, they are not unfriendly to these ideas when you present them in a way that, uh, doesn't trigger them. It seems like they're like most Americans, they're trained to respond to stimuli rather than, you know, maybe the substance of what these ideas mean. So in uh, in sort of unraveling that, you know, sort of revelation, what do you see infrared or, you know, I I'm aware that you've stated that you're in the process of creating a new you know organization. Um, is that something that your organization is seeking to sort of uh, take upon is sort of uh, showing you know this group of people and Americans in general, working class uh, Americans, wherever they might lie, that these ideas are something that are that would be beneficial to the American system and the American working class as a as a whole. Um. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's 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 difficult. It's it's so difficult to get this point across because, like, people on the internet are just not a very smart bunch. Most people kind of just very much uh what do you call it um 
what do you call this they have uh sorry i didn't get any sleep uh, what is it called it's called um low attention span they don't want to think about things past the surface right so when trump or maga people talk badly about communism oh that they're talking about the idea they're talking about this this platonic ideal right and it's like okay but then use common sense just want like one next order or layer of thinking you know which is very hard to demand of people which is okay what do they mean by that though like what do they actually do they are they actually referring to like the platonic eternal idea of communism or are they talking about like the rockefellers and uh the fbi and the cia and this kind of bare minimum of liberal authoritarianism which they don't have a word for besides what they've inherited from their grandparents from the cold war which is i mean they're using the same term to apply to a radically different situation just because it's like ready at hand there's it's just their way of making sense of things but does that reflect like an intrinsic experience with communism i mean are these actual communists they're talking about is is there an actual real phenomena of communism in the u.s that they are hostile to and it of course there isn't right so I just kind of find it a little infuriating when people will come to me and they'll be like, you're such an idiot. How can you, how, how can you propose uh, spreading the ideas of communism to MAGA people when they are so hostile to it? I'm like, <laughs> but words, <laughs> they don't have a universal meaning. They don't. It's like, do you think there's just a dictionary uh, transplanted in their brain that's shared by everyone in the world? And and this is what they mean by communism is the same thing as what Karl Marx meant or so I just find it so silly. But yeah, I mean, the organization I'm building is premised on the basis of not simply um, disseminating communist ideas, but uh, proving in practice to people what communism is. So the organization is going to be engaged in what I like to call public works, right? We're going to go to small rural communities and basically uh, give a lending hand to people, help people out in whatever small ways we can. Uh, you can call it charity, but I think in some regards, it's uh, it's more than that. It's using it's you know it, this is gonna sound so crazy it's like i'm almost a little inspired by that guy mr beast mr beast you guys know who that is or do i have to <laughs> wait 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 yeah go ahead i'm really yeah. interested in hearing this go ahead yeah. yeah so he he's like grown this giant platform because he just gives out money he just gives out money for free right like i think there's something proto-communist about that and it and it seems like a really like stupid analysis but it's like if no, you replace... I love this. You you find communism in everything, and I find it so great because it it is there, and um, most people don't realize it. But yeah, go ahead because I want to bring up another yeah. thing after this. I don't just find it communist because he's like spreading the wealth. I find it communist because he's like he is growing this like almost a movement on the basis of uh, you know um, on the basis of giving and expending, which is like. How is he making a profit if he's doing that, right? So I think, because why is he making a profit? Because he is spending money, but at the same time, he's growing a social capital, right? So I think there's something communists should learn from, from that. Maybe 
so not in terms of giving out money, but if you replace giving out money with engaging in good acts of maybe you can call it charity. I like to call it public works or uh, good works, even if you want to take a religious tone to it. But, you know, I, I use my Internet platform to, to bring people to remote locations, maybe clean up some yards, clean up some trash. I mean, help people solve problems where they just need labor, right? They just need labor. And we do this, and then we also put it on social media, and we spread the word and awareness. And I, I think that I, I'm interested in maybe starting a movement on the basis of something like that, inspiring others to do it. And the organization is decentralized for that reason. It's 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 going to incentivize people to form chapters and clubs, to engage in these good works, to spread the message of what they're doing, and basically a model of growing a movement on, on that basis of uh, public works is the main angle, right? And with public works comes a bunch of other things. You know, it comes with uh, holding events one day, holding, you know, I have a crazy idea too. Um, this is more long-term if we're successful. It's very American and it's it also sounds crazy. Uh, carnivals like hosting carnivals, right? Um, if it could get to that point. Um, this is how I this is how I think about building a communist movement in the US. I don't think about it in terms of like, because most people have this model of like, I just want to get more members and recruit people to my cult. And it's like, well, no, the people <laughs> who are in your group are the ones who are going to be like, dedicating the most amount of effort to doing something else, which is um, growing the influence of the group, right? It's not about just recruiting new members. It's about uh, expanding the reach and the imp impact your organization has on the public. So the model of growth is going to be based on internet, you know, digital uh, media. It's going to be based on um, decentralized kind of association and organization. And it's also going to be based on working for the people, more or less, right? And this is what, this is the basic, and, and by the way, one last thing, I don't mean to ramble, but we wanted this for the CPUSA. Our plan was to take over the CPUSA so that we could actually have a communist party that does this. It'd be very easy to effectively grow a communist party on this strategy, in my view. But um, they've like done a lot of sketchy, they're delaying the elections like a year out past what we'd expect. So I'm like, you know what? A lot of people are sitting around doing nothing. They want to somehow work to realize, the, you know, um, the virtues of this idea. They want to kind of like engage in some kind of action that that is pursuant to uh, and, you know, with this vision, you know, so it's like we should just launch our own shadow party if you will and do these things in the name of the communist party and and grow its reputation in a way that we see fit because they all they do is vote democrat and that's just so sad and pathetic you know before we wrap i have to i have to ask i have to ask this could you please tell our listeners why richmond north of north of richmond is a working class song yeah, that's that's another crazy thing. So 
I, uh, I, I, I um, posted the clip of that, like when it first came out and I had all these people like quote tweeting me like, oh my God, it's not about class war, you fucking retard and all this shit. And it's like Jack Posobiec is coming after me, all these like conservative grifters. And it's like, okay, um, you go in the comment section of that video of a guy singing about the rich men north of Richmond and singing about like the ailments of the working man. So from a common sense perspective, yeah, this is about some kind of class struggle. This is about the working class, right? You go and read the comments, it's people being like, yeah, I work in like a steel mill and I'm like, you know, overworked. I've got so much bills to pay. I'm struggling to feed my family. This resonated with me so much, yada, yada. Okay, so like this is this is an example of like how ideology harms people's ability to just see common sense. Because then people put this ideological wool, wool over their face and they're like, oh, actually, this guy's a kulak because he owns this huge farm and he's actually speaking on behalf of the interests of rich farmers. Uh, and uh, then you have right wing people saying, no, he's actually just uh, talking only about uh, politicians and there's no <laughs> class dimension to that at all, because obviously rich politicians are of the same class as a fucking factory worker in Virginia or something. So it's like, I'm kind of just baffled that I have to go on Twitter and like argue with people about this shit. When I feel like 99% of people can see clearly like what it is, you know, I hadn't heard the song, but I saw your post about it and I went and listened to the song and I was like, Oh yeah, that's exactly what it is. And it was just so funny to see all this pushback and it's like, what's wrong with it being a working class anthem aren't you just like it was just a very strange if you can believe it like i even kind of doubt myself sometimes i'm like damn that i must have gotten something wrong if this many because i thought it was common sense and then recently he just drops a video literally saying all of my songs about class which are about class are about defending the poor he ha he names these lyrics where he's talking about the poor getting poor the rich getting richer he says I'm really uh, disappointed to see all these like conservative or right-wing media people claim me as one of their own. Uh, I don't like how Fox News and these Republican politicians are trying to spin it in their own way when I was also talking about them. And I'm like, so I was right. And it's like, usually when you're vindicated about something, that should calm you down and you should be happy. But actually made me more angry because it's like, so what did I like? What did I get all those people counter signaling me for? Like, what was that for? Do I get like paid now? Do I get compensation? <laughs> you know, I'm, 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 I'm thinking about going to Jack Posobiec's house, knocking on his door and, you know, where's my money? He owes me a debt, you know, like, <laughs> a little bit, a little yeah. bit. He does. Well, I really actually, yeah. I enjoyed this episode a lot. This was a really good episode. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me on. I enjoyed it too. You'll have to come back. Tyler, how do you feel about your first guest ho guest hosting gig? Oh, uh, tremendous. Thank you uh, very <laughs> much, uh, Didi. And uh, thank you very much, uh, Haas, for coming on. I mean, you two are some of the most uh, influential and, uh, you know, inspirational people that I've come across just within the last, you know, couple years in which you're both very educational um, and you try to bring the truth to people in a very genuine way. And a lot of people try to twist this or try to make, uh, you know, some of you seem like you're uh, not what you're 
about, but I, I've seen nothing but uh, absolute genuine uh, attempts to not only search for the truth, find out what's real, what's real, what's not, and then try to separate, you know, fact from fiction in a very, you know, rigorous way, in a way that's not surface level, in a way that goes the extra step or the extra mile in order to, you know, present this to people so that they can have a, a more meaningful understanding of, you know, the events unfolding around them, because they're very complex. They're not, they're not simple. They're not, uh, you know, these are multifaceted issues in which uh, both of you have gone to great lengths in sort of just breaking down for the average, you know, person or layman, you know, and, you know, just, it, just pure education in the most, you know, genuine way. So, you know, I, I thank you very much for both, you know, uh, putting this on together. And I think there's, you know, a lot of good that can come from something like this. Well, I think that there's no better way to end the episode with than with Tyler showering praise upon both of us. What do you, <laughs> I think Haas would agree. Oh yeah, thank you. Appreciate the words, man. Yes, thank you, Tyler. And thank you, Lydia. I think we put her to sleep. And this has been another episode. No, you didn't. <laughs> this has been another episode of the DD Geopolitics podcast. Until next time.